Hey, this is John Metalavich from the Human Advancement Podcast and from Ruthless Performance. Today's podcast is episode eight in the series. I'm joined by Chase Sr. He is a broadcaster with WNEP. He's also an online personality with his Chase Down podcast and with his new project with Matt McGloin, and that is the Underrated Hour. Today we have a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and it just gets better as it goes on. We talk about everything from his motivation and broadcasting to how he maintains his composure under pressure and during live broadcasts. We talk about sports. Specifically, we talk about basketball, of all things. We talk about esports. We talk about some of his episodes that he's recorded for the Chase Down podcast, including my favorite, the one he did with uh, Jamie Rudisill. We also talk about Tom Brady. We talk about the founder of Nike. In all, it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and it's actually a slight digression from what I usually do in the world of sports. Whereas I'm more sports science-oriented, Chase and his perspective comes more from the realm of the sports industry as a whole. So without further delay, I bring you my podcast recording with Chase Sr. Hey, this is John Matalavich from the Human Advancement Podcast. Today, I'm joined by someone who's actually become a pretty close friend over the past year. Uh, that would be Chase Sr. He is a reporter with WNEP and an online personality. He does a few different podcasts. He does his own um, Chase Down podcast, which I was on twice now. He's also on a new podcast with a former Penn State quarterback, Matt McGloin, on his the Underrated Hour podcast which is launching soon. So I, you know, rather than just kind of getting into any kind of this, how are you doing stuff right off the bat? What, uh, what caused you to get so interested in media and just kind of being on, on all these different forms? Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me. I know you've been a guy who I've reached out to a lot in terms of me doing stories for WNEP or me reaching out to you, just asking you questions about um, workout stuff, sports science. So I appreciate you having me on. And as you mentioned, I had you on my podcast a couple of times, The Chase Down, which uh, people can find on any podcast platform. We had some really interesting conversations. So I appreciate you taking the time. And when you asked me to come on, I was more than happy to do so. Um, to answer your question, for me, like I'm lucky because I've known that I've wanted to get into broadcasting since I was five years old. And a lot of people struggle with what field they want to get into for so long and can't really make a decision until after they go to college when they already have to pay for their college tuition and then they graduate and they're like, I don't know what I want to do. For me, I took the necessary steps to get into broadcasting ever since I was a kid. So when I was five years old, uh, my mom and stepdad bought a house in Westchester. That's where I grew up, right outside of Philadelphia. And one of the first things we did was I walked into the house and I turned on the TV after running around the property in the yard, just screaming, cheering, so happy that we have this beautiful house. I turned on the TV and on came Comcast Sportsnet, which is now NBC Sports Philadelphia, which is the regional sports network in the Philadelphia area. It's basically the, the local sports center for all of the Philadelphia teams. And I saw the anchors and the reporters and the hosts on air talking about Philadelphia sports. And I looked at the TV, saw that they were doing, and I was just infatuated with it. And I said, that's what I want to do. So that kind of got me really interested in sports broadcasting. But then growing up in the Philly area, obviously, it's, it's, a, it's an area with a rabid fan base. And I became a part of that really quickly. And what got me really into baseball, which was my first love in sports in general, also was just listening to Phillies games during the summer and listening to the legendary iconic voice of Harry Callis called baseball games. He was really unique with um, how we broadcasted games. You could tell he really cared about the game of baseball the fan base, the organization, and just the way that he came through with his delivery. It was authentic, real, pure, organic. And he just had a way of kind of 
kind of bringing the viewer in in a really special way. And I, I just became obsessed from from a really young age. And now that we're thinking about Michael Jordan nowadays with the Last Dance documentary, which followed around the Bulls um, throughout that last season in 97, 98. And the documentary focuses really on Michael Jordan's entire career. I can remember me being a kid at like four or five years old when the Bulls were at the end of that dynasty, uh, rounding out those six NBA finals and six championships. I remember standing in front of my TV with a Bulls outfit head to toe kind of like a winter bulls jacket and pants and like unzippering it with a michael jordan jersey underneath and thinking that like during their introductions i was also going to be introduced and playing with the bulls so i remember those memories vividly as a kid and at that point i was five or six years old and I was also, you know, obsessed with the Bulls at that point because Space Jam had came out in, I think, 1997. And uh, just loved Michael Jordan, loved all of, the, all of the Bugs Bunny cartoons that were involved in that film. And I, I just became a, a huge sports fan right from the jump. And especially when I realized I couldn't play professionally, I was like, hey, might as well be a broadcaster be a reporter, uh, do some play-by-play color commentating, and, and be on the on-air side of, of sports. Well, it, it's somewhat comparable. I mean, if you look at, if you look at a, a professional athlete, they're almost a, a, under a similar circumstance to what you were talking about. I, I like to view it through, through the angle of almost like emergence. The, the more decisions you can make in a given domain, uh, the, the longer that code of decisions is, the higher the propensity it, it, there is for an athlete or an individual to excel in a given field. And in your case, right. it just happened to be broadcasting. In, in the case of these athletes, a lot of the time it is, you know, it, it's just going at that high level of sport. And so many things, so many factors need to line up. But, you know, for you, I mean, just for, for you to do what you do. And, and from an, again, from an economic perspective, actually, it, it's kind of comparable. It's, it's almost like that tournament model that you see in, uh, in, in high level sports where there's uh, just a very few uh, chunks of the pie, there are very, very few slivers uh, that where the majority of people are trying to get into those positions. I mean, in broadcasting, people are trying to get those jobs in, in high performing, in professional athletics, people are trying to get those jobs as well. It's, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned that the Chicago, the, we mentioned specifically Michael Jordan. I, you know, up until the point where I was actually working as a strength and conditioning coach for a collegiate basketball team, it was right around the time I began to realize that my, Michael Jordan was no longer playing uh, professional basketball. And this is 10 years. That's before. hilarious. Yeah. So I, I was hilarious. a little bit behind on the basketball one, but no, I, I, I totally get that. From your perspective, what's actually crazy about this 10-part documentary, we're now through eight episodes, and I'm not sure when this podcast is airing, but um, he got into the league in 1984, and he, he had so much God-gifted ability and was such an alien and such a freak that he didn't even start lifting weights or really working out outside of basketball until like 1989. Can you imagine that? I mean, he was... He goes into the league in 1984, and right away, you know, players and, and members of the organization are quoted as saying three games into his tenure and just a couple of weeks into his tenure with the Bulls, they knew he was the best player on the team already, right? And then I think it was in his second year in maybe 1986 against some of the great Boston Celtics teams led by Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, uh, he goes out. In, in the first two games of the playoffs when the Celtics are at the peak of their powers and drops, you know, more than like 120 points in back-to-back games combined. And he wasn't even lifting weights then. He was just a freakish athlete who was just an insane basketball player at that point. And then he didn't really pick up uh, weightlifting until the Detroit Pistons and their, their bullish uh, rugged mentality kind of beat them down and they were so physical with them where MJ was like, hey, I got to bulk up so that I can absorb this physicality. And that's when he started lifting. And then 91, he wins his first championship and then the rest is history. Yeah, you'll, you'll see that pretty commonly. In, so obviously, every, it's, it's, no, it's no secret that people that play basketball tend to be taller individuals. Same thing holds true for swimming, which is a population I work with a lot. But right. one of the reasons that you'll see basketball players have such a low propensity, a, such a low interest for any kind of weight lifting activities, whatsoever, any kind of strength and conditioning, is just because the leverages that make these athletes so good at 
either swimming where they're pulling all that water or, or what puts them that much closer to being at the net is the same exact things that's working against them in the gym. So those levers that they have working for them on, on the court working against them so it's just a matter of, i think a lot of the time with basketball players they just don't want to because of how how piss poor they are at it realistically it just does not come naturally to them but you know regardless of how tall you are it's a sport where building a vertical jump really helps a hell of a lot and what the gym is one of the only ways you can really do that i mean sure you could do plyometric work on the court but you, know, you, you do need to build that raw strength to kind of have that foundation to work from no question. Yeah. And if you ask me to vertical jump, I, I don't know if I could clear one foot, but if you, you ask me to stand around the perimeter and knock down some three pointers, I can definitely do that. But the vertical is, is not in my favor. Okay. Well put those two together and you got, you got, uh, you got a pretty good athlete on your hands. That's there you go. It. I wish I was just six, four, six, five. And you know, maybe I could have played college basketball. I'm about <laughs> six, foot six, one, but it's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm liking the broadcasting thing so far. That documentary is The Last Dance? The Last Dance, yeah. ESPN documentary. ESPN, that was what I was going to ask you as well. Uh, and now you might be, this is something I, I think I just kind of peripherally heard. You know, like I said, basketball isn't something I, I've ever been too, um, too much concerned with. I don't have too many basketball players kind of coming through ruthless. But is it true that he did not make the, Michael Jordan didn't make the team when he was in high school? that true yeah yeah so when he was I think a freshman or sophomore in high school he did not make varsity and that's like there's this legend of Michael Jordan where anytime anybody slighted him anytime anybody disrespected him or doubted him he would put that in the back of his mind and then at some point sometime down the road he would snatch your heart out and take your soul. And that's part of the greatness of Michael Jordan is just his insane level of savagery and competitiveness. So he takes negatives and turns them into positives. He did that anytime anybody doubted him on the basketball court. He did that when his father, um, you know, was shot and killed. Uh, he turned a negative into positive. And anytime anybody said, Michael, you can't do this, you can't do that, or I'm going to shut you down, he would shut you up and, and really just disrespect you in the most savage way possible. So, yeah, that, that's part of the legend of MJ. He didn't make his varsity team when he was young in high school. And then he ends up being uh, one of the top high school uh, recruits, goes to University of North Carolina, wins national championship, and, uh, and then goes to the Bulls and wins six titles and is now the greatest player ever. Ever. While we're still on, you know, basketball isn't something I, I thought I would think that would kind of, I didn't think basketball would be something I would come across much since I stopped working with the, in a collegiate setting as a yeah. strength and conditioning coach. But one of the things that I came to notice that not too many other people noticed in that capacity was the amount of ankle injuries that you see in basketball players is almost a function of the footwear. So, you know, everyone wears the, these high tops. It, you know, just the traditional basketball shoe that kind of covers the ankle. One of the issues with that is just that the ankle is designed just through through evolution to absorb a hell of a lot of impact from just landing. It's just it's one of the primary things in, in landing mechanics. And as you have those those high top basketball shoes, one of the issues is the ankle can't work and absorb force as efficiently as it otherwise should be able to. So a lot of that force that would otherwise be absorbed by the ankle now travels up the chain and is is ameliorated by the knee. So you get more knee pain because of the ankle can't work as well as it should. But it's it's a weird it's a weird it's a vicious cycle because you know these these basketball players as they get older and they have more and more experience with these high tops they need the high tops more and more because the ankles are less and less stable independently of the shoe. So it's a weird catch yeah. too. Yeah, it's crazy to think that, you know, how, sp how far sports science has come, how far, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, just gear has come in general, right? To think that like in the 70s and even in the 80s, professional basketball players were wearing Chuck Taylors right? Yeah. There's absolutely no support on Chuck Taylors. I love Chuck T's. I still wear them low top, high top, whatever. But if you ask me to play basketball in them, there's no way I could. And I actually had uh, an ankle basketball injury that I didn't treat right away and actually ended up having to get surgery because of the instability of the ankle. Um, I had to get a 
repair done in 2012 where they kind of cut the ligaments on the outside part of my ankle and reattached them to tighten it. And uh, I haven't had really any problems since with the exception of a minor setback um, last year. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's all come so far. And you look at one of the most I guess, influential and dominant players of this generation, Steph Curry, if those advancements weren't made in sports science and medically, a guy like Steph Curry might not have had the career that he had because early in his career, he kept suffering sprained ankles and ankle injuries. And in the early 2000s, even, they might not have been able to treat those ankle injuries. Now, everything medically is so much different, so much more advanced, and they're able to treat him, and he's able to have one of the best careers of anybody ever and is the best shooter of all time. I, I got to go back to what you said. Everything about the ankle is just crazy. Cause I agree. I, I agree. I, I've heard high tops can also be detrimental too, right? Because there's yeah, supposed I, to be flexibility with the ankle. Yeah, I don't, I don't recommend high tops for the most part. I think that one of the things people could find uh, just for some of the shoes that we advocate for are the shoes on, if you go to the, the at Ruthless Perform Instagram page, we have a short uh, footwear guide on the top there, just in our highlights. And that just kind of goes over some of the ones we like the most, the New Balance Minimus. Um, there are a few different ones. It gets a little bit different with basketball just because you're, you're on that black top and you could do a lot of plyometric activities in, in a minimum style footwear, but the problem becomes as you do it over time. So as you, uh, as that basketball game wears on and you fatigue more and more, those mechanics kind of begin to deteriorate. So as the mechanics deteriorate, you need to rely on the footwear a little bit more to make up for, for what the body's kind of missing out on. But with the Chuck Taylors though, that's actually, I, that's my number one recommended footwear for uh, when people start training with us. Just because I say I want people training in a in a flat in a flat shoe, uh, but you know we're not we're not doing basketball or anything crazy like that. But I want them training in a flat shoe. Um, the weight of the Chuck Taylors could be a bit of an issue with some exercises. Say we were running or something, I wouldn't advocate for that whatsoever. But the fact is, the Chuck Taylors are great because they are so flat. They don't have uh, what we call like a heel to toe drop. So the the height of the heel is the same as the height of the toe, as opposed to any other shoe where that heel is up higher. And as that heel goes up higher, it, it puts more strain on the knee because it makes the quadriceps do more work than the hamstrings. So we Interesting. want those feet to be flat as possible. And the Interesting. reason I, I advocate for the Chuck Taylors is one, they look cool. And two, um, most people just have them laying around. Some of the, some of the barefoot style footwear you can get into, um, like Vivo barefoot, the, there you're looking at like $200 a shoe as opposed to the Chuck Taylors, like 30 or 40. 40, 50. Yeah. And like, I know for me growing up when, when we were playing basketball, almost everybody who played basketball with me or everybody who sold shoes, Nikes, Adidas, Reeboks, all of the players who had sponsorship deals, they all had high top shoes. Mm -hmm. Every single athlete had high top shoes. Now it's, it's much different. A lot of some of the top players in the league have low top or mid, mid top shoes. I know Kobe Bryant was one of the first ones to kind of experiment with the low top shoes, rest in peace to, to one of the goats. But I remember he started coming out with low top basketball shoes. And I was like, I don't know if I can wear these because I feel like my, my ankles would go every which way, but they've become more and more popular as changes have been made to footwear. Yeah. And it, they're a good choice. Like if you are a parent out there and you're looking for a shoe to begin your, your kids young and they're, they, they've just begun training, it's a good idea to kind of let them rely on the natural strength of the ankle as opposed to kind of putting them in the higher top. But if it is an older athlete we're talking about, it's something you can kind of slowly transition into. Uh, yeah right off the bat. my thing was like I also played baseball in addition to basketball and I know we got like team cleats my junior and senior year of high school and we all got like these low top all white Nikes which looked real fresh but when we would run and do sprints in like the outfield the grass wasn't always great, right? Playing baseball in the Northeast, right? Uh, when it's kind of cold and, and the grass is kind of rocky. And I just like remember my ankles going every which way. And I hated that. And I, at looking back on it, I was like, man, I, I feel like my, my performance could have been just a tad better in, in the littlest way um, if I would have had high tops because my ankles wouldn't have been like rocking like that. 
the good thing about the ankles doing that, and one of the reasons you see overuse injuries so much in runners is because they're running on relatively flat surfaces. So the foot strike rep after rep after rep is almost identical because they're on a hard surface like a macadam or a cement or something like that. So each foot strike looks exactly the same as the last. One of the benefits of something like trail running where you do have more of a varied terrain uh, is that not only are you, you climbing an elevation, descending, things like that, but also each foot strike looks different than the last. So the ankle doesn't need to go through the exact same repetitive motion rep after rep after rep. So you're actually learning to kind of absorb force through, through, more, through more varied foot strikes. So sometimes it's a little bit more supinated, a little bit more pronated, things like that. And overall, it just makes for a stronger foot. This is why I reach out to you about some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah but it, it, it's not you know this is all kind of on the forefront so it, it's tough for this knowledge to be institutionalized like it's not it's not things that you necessarily hear from the inside of an establishment because for it to trickle down i mean first it needs to be kind of accepted by the medical literature and then it needs to be it needs to be integrated into either physical therapist um education continuing education practices or, or whatever the case might be so so by the time, see, one of the reasons I, I like what I do and, and, and kind of working in the private sector as opposed to just working directly for um, a college or something like that is I have the ability, I have a lot more leeway in terms of seeing what the, seeing what the next, the latest and greatest in the research says without kind of having to worry so much about, you know, waiting for, waiting for the institution to catch up with the rules and regulations. And that freedom and flexibility must be nice too. It is, it is, it is. Um, you know, you don't, you don't see what I have much in the collegiate strength and conditioning setting i mean those guys are those guys are busting their asses i I respect the hell out of them for it but you know part part of you know i'm out there trying to make the best athletes i can but one of the things i'm also really focused on just from my own perspective is just intentionality and and lifestyle design and and ensuring that not only can i can i i have a, a solid athlete uh, repertoire and, and building up different athletes across the board, but I'm also looking for you know it, it, having the best life I can as well. And, no know, question. I, I, I enjoy what I do, but you know I, I do I strive to have that balance and where I do the strength conditioning setting, you can't have that. Yeah, I mean, so we were talking before this podcast, and I was telling you that I'm reading Tom Brady's TB12 method book, and that came out in 2017, and that kind of details his you know, really devoted work with nutrition, pliability, and workout techniques. And he makes really good points in saying that, like, he's a quarterback, right? And what pliability is basically to, to, to sum it all up is the softening and extending of muscles and stretching of muscles to take pressure off the joints. He's a quarterback. He does not need to bench 250 to 300 pounds. That literally serves no purpose for him. So he caters his workouts and he, he revolves everything around what he does as an athlete, as a quarterback. He doesn't need to bench press, right? So he's going to do all of these other workouts that, that kind of go in line with what he's asking his body to do. And that's just fascinating to me because like, everybody should kind of be catering their workouts to what they do specifically for me. Like maybe I play pickup basketball here and there. And if somebody wants to ask me to throw the football around here and there, you know, that's what I'll do for my workouts. I run, I swim. I can't wait to get back to swimming after this pandemic. And I do some light lifting with resistance bands. I don't need to do free weights. I don't need to bench 200 pounds because I'm just going to get hurt, right? My body will start breaking down. Instead, I'm going to do other workouts that kind of just like suit me for what I want to do in my everyday life. And, and that's, that's kind of the, the process of the TB12 method is just doing things specifically to what you do with your everyday life so that you can do it and maximize your performance. You said specificity twice, which is going to be is going to be a funny segue into, into me saying this. I actually, what I advocate for is actually something I, I've called anti-specificity training, where yeah. all of the training that you're getting for your sport, you're going to get on the field, you're going to get in the pool, you're going to get in the port, whatever. But what we need to do in the weight room is things that actually mitigate the likelihood of overuse injuries. So all of the things yep. that you're building on the court, we actually want to do almost the opposite of that in the weight room to kind of help mitigate the likelihood say so with, with basketballs they're they get very quad dominant at the front of their legs that's why you see so much so many acl injuries so 
although working more on the quads in the weight room for something like a basketball player might be more advantageous to the sport. What we want to actually do is work more on the hamstrings, which is the backside of the leg, to, to help keep that knee in line so that when they're on the court, they're, they're better off. I think, I think the, the bench thing is a, a little iffy. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the bench. One of the times I will advocate for that with football players is obviously combine prep. I mean, regardless of how we feel about an exercise, if it's in the testing, if, the, if it's in the, if it's in, you know, the testing for what they are doing for their sport, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, that's, we have to, we have to cater to the test. Um, I don't necessarily think the bench is the best. I don't do it that much with swimmers. Again, when you have long-limbed individuals, bench press is a pretty oh, really hard exercise. Yeah, yeah, because just the, the angle that that elbow has to travel to get that bar down to the chest is so much further than it would be with a shorter-limbed individual like you might see with like a wrestler or something with a weight class individual. So that's something to consider there. But as far as the – so in, in that case, we'd actually do something like a, a – a floor press where we're right, looking right. at doing basically the bench, but doing it from the ground so that the bar is ending at the same exact place on everybody where just where that arm is flat against the ground. So it's the same yeah. exact thing as bench. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's simple stuff. And obviously I'm no expert in this and, you know, I'm just really starting to get into nutrition and workout techniques and all that stuff. You're, you're far more advanced and knowledgeable than I am, but like, it just comes down to the, the simple part of say, if you're a quarterback, why do you need to bench press if this yeah. is your throwing motion? That's yeah. part of the TB12 method, right? If you're an offensive lineman and you're pass blocking and you're run blocking and you're doing this motion, that's, that's all shoulders and chest, right? That's mm -hmm. where a bench press could be advantageous for that certain individual. But well, not even, everybody has to do that. Even there, what's interesting actually is when you're standing, there's a, a limitation. Physics describes a limitation as to the, the, the force you could exert. Um, horizontally so and it's actually it's actually related to it's it's a function of your body weight so you can't really ever horizontally press more than 40 percent of your body weight without some kind of outside support just because otherwise you'll just push yourself backwards I mean that's just the nature of things so in the case of something like that as opposed to you know even a lineman thinking they need to get their bench up to 400 or something like that they're better off just getting their body weight up more just through general strength and conditioning work as opposed to trying to specifically replicate um, a block just because it's just a function of, of body weight, which is an interesting thing. What I've learned over time is that the human body is so complex and just so fascinating um, to think how everything kind of in a way is all like interconnected is just like mind blowing to me, you know? Yeah. And, and you kind of mentioned it like you have knee pain. You're like, oh, you think oh, I got to focus on the knee. It could be hamstrings because the hamstrings go to the knee and that's what's yeah. causing knee pain or working on your hamstrings could help alleviate that, right? The, the, the fact that like any type of back issues can lead to a multitude of other issues across the body. It's just like, what? You would never yeah. think that one part of the body could lead to pain or discomfort in another part of the, the body. And uh, man, that's why I didn't get into this because I'm just not smart enough to. Oh, to no, no. Yeah, I, I, I totally body. agree. I, it's it's in, one of the things I think is interesting. People think it's actually a surprise that the body is so integrated. Uh, with itself but i think it's it actually makes more sense than it would otherwise i mean again just from an evolutionary perspective it, it only makes sense that we have everything about us does more than one specific job i mean if we were to just have a tissue that only did one thing it could better be served by doing something else like we talked about in uh, the interview for wnep on the lymphatic system i mean right it, it doesn't make sense for the muscles just to be doing move locomotion when it could also be working as a pump for the lymphatic system so so it just makes sense actually that it that it is doing as much as it does one of the things i think you'd probably be interested in i don't know if we've talked about it in the past but one of the things that actually a lot of the the theories and practices that I, we do at, at ruthless performance are based on is the idea of the joint by joint theory and it kind of goes into why uh, the back is like it is and, and why it's related to so many things basically the joint by joint theory um states that joints alternate in function between mobility and stability. So the ankle is supposed to, like we were talking about with basketball, ankle is supposed to be able to move all over the place. And as long as the ankle can move all over the place, the knee can do what it's supposed to do, which is supposed to be relatively stable and only move front to back. 
And as long as the knee is stable, then the hips can move all over the place like they're supposed to do. Like, you know, you do, you'll do ankle stretches and you'll do hip stretches, but you don't talk, hear people talking about doing knee stretches. Sure, they're doing stretches with muscles around it, but they're not actually trying to mobilize the knee joint. And right. it, the same thing works in the back. So as long as, like you were talking about with pliability, as long as, every, as long as everything's working as it should, things up and down the chain work better too. All makes sense. Yeah. That's why we focus so much on, and it's probably some of the things that Tom Braden talks about in his book, like the pliability idea that everything's predicated on everything else working. So it's like, it's weird to, everyone will kind of wants to think about what's like the, the, the most important thing. And most important thing tends to just be whatever the most underlooked thing is. So it's, it's almost, it's partially just my contrarian nature, but it's also just part, partly just a, a function of human anatomy is whatever we're not focusing on is what we need to focus on. It, you know, just the idea of whatever the, the weakest link in the chain is, is, is where the chain breaks. So that's why, you know, I, I, I think a lot of the exercises people talk about are great, but at the same time, those exercises are already commonly accepted practices. So we need to kind of integrate some of these other things that um, look at some of these and address some of these weaker things that we're not thinking about so much. Yeah, it's all it's all fascinating uh, case study, you know. Yeah, I want to get into so you're you're starting a, a new podcast uh, with Matt McGloin that underrated hour. What's what's mm-hmm. that been like so far, and, and kind of what direction are you planning on going with that, and where can people find it? Yeah, so it's called the Underrated Hour. We actually just recorded our first episode um, this past Friday. So by the time, John, your podcast comes out, we're probably going to have an episode or two out. Uh, We recorded our first episode on May 8th. So that's out on all podcast platforms. So um, Matt McGloin is a guy who, it's called the Underrated Hour because Matt McGloin for his entire career has been underrated. Um, and overlooked. So he was the first walk-on to ever start at quarterback at Penn State University. When he ended up going there, he set a record for the most touchdown passes thrown by any individual in Penn State history. That record has since been broken. He was the Burlesworth Award winner for the best walk-on in the entire country. So he had a really, really nice career at Penn State. And the way that he handled the whole Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal when he was there is admirable to me as well, because there were a lot of people who were turning up the heat on that program, calling for it to be taken out of college football and disband, right? And a lot of athletes would have, in that situation, decided to go elsewhere and take their talents to another university, another program to continue their careers in hopes that they can get to the NFL and just avoid all of the backlash and all of the criticism. Matt McGloin ended up staying at Penn State throughout that process and was the face of the program and took the brunt of the criticism, even though it wasn't directed at him, and translated it onto into success and wins on the field. And uh, from there, ended up being uh, not drafted, Uh, in the NFL draft, but then made a roster with the Oakland Raiders during training camp as an undrafted free agent. And just think about how, how hard that is to do as a quarterback, right? It's the most important position in football and arguably the most important position in all of sports. That's the one position that going into a season you need to have solidified, right? So usually you know who your three guys are. Well, Matt McGloin goes in there as a guy who wasn't drafted, who was overlooked, who was underrated, and ended up making a roster. And then with the Raiders, made seven starts in his first career start in the NFL through three touchdown passes. Had a little bit of success there um, for a couple of seasons and then played very briefly. Didn't make any appearances, but played briefly with the Philadelphia Eagles, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the Houston Texans before playing as the starting quarterback for the New York Guardians in the XFL um, this past winter, which was actually unfortunate that uh, that league ended because of the coronavirus because it was pretty successful in its early going. So long story short, uh, he asked me to be on his podcast, uh, The Underrated Hour. And for me, it was an honor. You know, I grew up outside of the Philadelphia area watching Penn State games every Saturday and I watched him growing up and to see him kind of mature from the quarterback at Penn State to now hosting the podcast to be a member and and part of the team um, was awesome. We, We had recorded a podcast on my own 
podcast um, last fall and it went really well. Like a sign of a good podcast is when you go like an hour, hour and a half and then you turn everything off and you're like, wow, that felt like a half hour, 45 minutes. When it goes by yeah. quickly, that's always a good sign. That happened with us. We stayed in touch and uh, he came to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I'm starting this podcast now that the XFL is over. Would you want to be a part of it? So I was like, Hell yeah. You know, I, I love this medium. I love talking as, as a lot of people can, can probably tell already. Um, I'm very passionate about sports and we're going to be talking a lot of football. It's going to be football oriented, um, NFL, college football. We talked a little about, about his experience in the XFL um, in the first episode. And then we're, of course, going to add some pop culture in there with a little bit of humor and, and talk about just some current events and just pray that we have a football season coming this fall. Because if we don't, I will be severely hurt. And I think America will also, uh, you know, feel, feel the consequences of that as well. Yeah, what's, your, what's your insight? What do you think if you... What do you think the crystal ball holds in terms of fall sports? It's impossible to predict. And yep. during this pandemic, I've been, I've been saying this a lot. Like it is foolish to throw out a timeline because nobody knows what's going to happen because we're in unprecedented territory. We've never seen a situa situation like this in our nation's history, right? We've never had to shut down like this for the likes of how long we've shut down for. So to make a prediction of what's going to happen in September, October, November here in May, to me makes no sense. But mm -hmm. in saying that, I I've always been kind of optimistic with us returning to normalcy somewhat sooner rather than later. And I've been following a lot of the trends of what's going on. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic that there's going to be sports at some point this summer and later this fall. And over the weekend, I'm watching the UFC. They're able to have fights in a really safe manner. And they actually had a fighter test positive for COVID-19. They tested him on a Wednesday. They got the positive results back on a Friday. They took him out right away. And that was that. Nobody else is sick, right? And I think that's what we're going to see some of these pro leagues. That's the route we're going to see some of them take where – if, if an athlete tests positive, that doesn't mean you have to necessarily shut the entire league down, right? You take that individual out, they quarantine for 14 days, and then you have rapid test results and rapid testing for all other people at all times for all of the other athletes and members of the organization. And if we can get to a point where there is testing that's readily available for everybody, where you can test everybody on almost a daily or every couple of days basis and you can get those results back quickly to the point where you're not taking tests away from the public, then I think we're, we're going to have sports come back. Look, golf is already back. The UFC is back. Major League Baseball is coming up with plans to come back in, in July with no fans. And that's the reality that we're facing, John, is like, I don't think we're going to have fans at some of these sporting events, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't have sports at all. In fact, I think sports can be the great equalizer in bringing this country together um, after a really difficult time. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking the positive route on this, but again, I'm not a medical professional and I think it's, it's stupid to throw out timelines out there and some predictions, but in looking at where things are trending, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about the return of sports. And lastly, in terms of this, I'll say, I'll say this. Sports leagues are a business, and people look at it as just a form of entertainment, but sports leagues are a business. They want to make money. They need to bring a revenue in. And if the players don't play, they don't get paid. So they need to get a paycheck to put food on the table. And I know that they're making a lot of money, but still, with the lives that they live and how they have to train, you know this too, and, and their diets and nutrition they need money to pay for all of that to maximize their performance. They want to get paid. So they're going to do really everything that they can. The league is going to do everything that they can to bring in revenue. And the players are going to do everything that they can to make money. So um, with that, I, I think sports leagues are going to exhaust every type of possibility to bring their leagues back and continue so that they can make their money and we can you know, come together as a country for that little bit of respite that we need. You know, I, you're, I, I appreciate, I, I admire your, your dedication to 
to, to sports broadcasting as a whole, like you said, just to, you know, starting at, at such a young age. But how do you manage, particularly in the context of, of live reports, how do you manage to, to stay under pressure, to not crack under pressure? I mean, I, even just on here, just knowing that there's a camera going, I'm, I'm just fumbling with my words. I sound, I sound better than this in, per, in person, I promise. But you, you know that anyway, but some people may not. Um, no, I, so, I think you're doing a good job. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. What, uh, so what do you, how do you manage to just kind of stay on track and stay the course and, and stay focused and, and not crack under pressure? So I, I actually like pressure. Like if we were doing this, knowing that we could start over and knowing that, you know, we could just throw away this recording and, 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 and start all over again. I wouldn't like that as much as knowing that we're doing this quote unquote live because I like the pressure of having to perform and having to come through. And that's kind of been my mindset as long as I've been doing this. When you're out in the field too, and that light is on you and you know that 500,000 people to a million people are watching you, that pressure of knowing that you can't screw up is real and you do feel that and you do get some butterflies and you do get nervous sometimes. But knowing that if you do mess up that, you know, you could look like a damn fool, that really ups your focus and increases your focus to a point where you really have to be on point. Um, and there have been a couple of examples of this. I was at the Philadelphia Phillies opening day in April of last year, and I was doing live reports outside of the stadium because there was so much hype around the Phillies because Bryce Harper had just signed his 13-year, $330 million contract, and everybody thought the Phillies were going to make the World Series. And when I'm live outside of the stadium doing reports, I had a couple of people on live television, and you can check this out on, on my Twitter page. It's, it's all over the place. It got so many views and so much reaction, but people came up to me and were like touching me and yelling in my ear and putting their arm around me and taking their hat off and putting their hat on me as I'm live on television. And <laughs> I just had to keep my cool and kind of go with the flow and play along with it. Because if I would have overreacted or reacted to that and scolded them or cursed them out or looked disgusted, how would that make me look? Instead, of looking like a fool in that regard, I played it off so cool and I was, I was just so calm under pressure and everybody was like, wow, you were able to stay that composed and it made me look better than if I would have reacted in a negative way. And then, you know, I, I was just prepared for this when I went to Temple. Like knowing that I, I, I wanted to do this since I was five, I took the necessary steps of, of wanting to get into this. I was one of the rare kids who growing up as a child would run out to the end of the driveway in the mornings and get the Philadelphia Inquirer and read the newspaper. I would listen to sports radio all the time and sometimes even fall asleep to it. On a Monday night football game when my parents wouldn't let me uh, watch the entire Eagles game because I'd be staying up until 12 on a school night, I would set my alarm, run downstairs in the morning just so I could catch the highlights. In high school, I was part of the, the morning announcements. I was the sports anchor and did the sports reports live on TV in front of the entire school. And you know how brutal high school students can be in terms of bullying and all that. If I would have messed up, I would have gotten shit forever, right? Um, so I, I felt that pressure and I was able to perform. And then when I went to Temple, I wrote for the school newspaper. I was a play-by-play and color commentator for the Temple men's basketball and football teams. I did more than 100 live shows as an anchor, host, and reporter on Temple Television. Me and my buddy, Zach Gelb, who's now doing a national show Monday through Friday on CBS Sports Radio, we did a couple of hundred radio shows that were live on Temple student-run radio station WHIP. So that prepared me, and I, I was able to get the reps to just ready myself for a career in, in television, radio, and podcasting, and kind of got me over that hump of feeling nervous. Now it just comes really naturally for me. And sometimes I do podcasts by myself, and I talk like 30, 45 minutes solo. And I'm just like, wow, I, I, I look at the time and I'm like, damn, I was really talking for that long. But for me, I'm lucky. It, it just comes, it comes naturally to me. What so you, you didn't know that you were going to do this for for that long and and I had a similar experience kind of throughout high school where I was fortunate in that I was able to travel a good bit and one of the things I noticed 
kind of going through high school, I wanted to set myself up for long-term success in the field. So I wanted to go out and kind of meet with like, like-minded people and industry experts, industry pros and, and that kind of thing. Um, so one of the things I noticed throughout high school was anytime I, I kind of asked or had any kind of request saying, you know, this is a field I was interested in being in and, and one, wanted to either just shadow someone or kind of observe at their facility or whatever the case might be. Everyone was very happy to oblige, but particularly just because I was at such a young age, it wasn't like an afterthought where I was after college and didn't know what I wanted to do and was all of a sudden just started trying to knock down people's, door, people's doors. But just from that age, people, I think people appreciated um, that, that interest early on. Um, and that enthusiasm. Did you have any similar experiences in high school, kind of trying out the different things and um, be it internships or you know any kind of observations or anything like that? Yeah, no question. Um, and, and working off what I just said, I, I remembered one thing I want to say. Like if you have, if you're in the course of a conversation with anybody, anybody is saying uh, or stumbling over their words, it's really not a big deal. That's just the course of a conversation. So like when I'm on live TV and, and say I stumble or I say a word wrong or I say, uh, it might feel bad in the moment, but then you go back and watch it and you're like, oh, that wasn't that bad at all. And then you think when I'm having a conversation with somebody that happens all the time. So for those who are, who are trying to get into this business, or maybe you're starting a podcast, TV, radio, or whatever, and you're saying, uh, or you have gaps in what you're saying, or you stumble over a word, it's really not that big of a deal because it happens all the time. I've, I've gotten better at it fast. I, I know exactly. that much. And it all, it's all reps, dude. It's all reps. It's all My reps. only problem was, you know, I, one of the things I was going to do just to kind of expedite the whole process for me was I was going to, when I started with this, I was thinking, all right, I'm going to record a couple of these lectures and, and as an incentive for me to stop doing this um or whatever ramp stuttering nonsense, what I was going to do was I was just going to donate 10 cents to Back in Black Dog Rescue every time I said um. But okay. it, I, I would have been bankrupt so fast. It, 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 got, it got out of hand. That's a good way to, to hold yourself accountable though, you know, but yeah, to answer, to answer your other question, no matter what you do, whether it be, you know, sports science, physical therapy, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or you're in, getting into broadcasting, whatever, networking is important. And like, I know this is thrown out there all the time, this saying, it's all, it's all about who you know, not what you know. There, there is, there is, there is a lot of um, truth to that, right? Sometimes it's all about who you know. So I think it was in middle school or in high school, I reached out to radio hosts of, of 610 WIP, which is now 94 WIP, which is the mega sports talk radio station in Philadelphia. I reached out to a guy, Brian Startari, um, who I still communicate with on, on Twitter here and there. Uh, I reached out to him and said, hey, Brian, I'm in middle school. I really wanted to get into this business. Maybe I was in high school at this point. Is there any, any opportunity for me to come in and shadow you? And I had listened to that stady, uh, that, 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 uh, that station religiously growing up. And I reached out to him, asked him if I could shadow him. And he let me come into the studio on a Saturday morning when he was doing a show. And he actually got me on the air toward the end of his show. And to be able to do that as, as what a high schooler was just incredible for me, knowing that I, that I, that I listened to that radio station religiously growing up. Um, and, and from there, it, it was all about just reaching out to people who were in the field, who I kind of admired, who I had respect for, just asking very little things. And it's really hard for them. Like knowing, knowing the position that I'm in now and knowing my work schedule now and knowing what it takes to be at the level that some of the big time people are, there really isn't much time in the day for, for you to just like take 30 minutes out of your day to talk to somebody and help them, you know, through the process. But there could be a couple of minutes here and there. There could be one little thing that you could say that could really help an individual greatly. So what I would say is just like, no matter what you want to do, reach out to people. And if you don't get responses back, don't be discouraged. Continue to reach out to other people or send that person a message because there are little bits of advice that people could give you that could honestly go such a long way in helping you out. I've been doing this, let's see, I graduated Temple five years ago now this year. And I'm still learning so much about myself and how to be authentic on the air and, and stylistically be myself. And it's really, really hard to try to master that. Um, Ernie Johnson, who is the great host for, uh, you know, the NBA show on TNT has done this thing during the pandemic where he's 
brought on some of the best media professionals in the entire industry. He's called it EJ's Journalism School. And they've gone live on Periscope on Twitter for about an hour or more. And they kind of describe the path that they took and take questions from people who are typing in questions on Periscope. And I've learned just so much from just watching some of those professionals talk about what they do and how to get to where, they, where they're at now and how to master you know, stylistically what they do and just those little bits of advice I've taken and I've implemented that into what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks and I've noticed some differences in my overall mental process and, and how you know, my delivery is and stuff. So reaching out to people is really all you can do in any field to really to help you out greatly, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I that that was that was remarkable that was a remarkable little rant there uh, yeah <laughs> and i could just like keep going it's just you can tell I'm just so passionate about it. And like, I can't wait to, to be in a position where, you know, my following is large to the point where some people are reaching out to me for advice because I know how desperate and how eager I was to get advice from other people. And, you know, I've, I've got, I've got some, some people reaching out to me for some career advice who are, you know, almost in my age bracket, but I can't wait to get to a point where I can really give people like, inspiring influential yep. feedback um, that I completely will agree I, I think that's one of the best markers of success, of success is to be able to help people one For of the sure. things I've noticed as I've gotten older is I you know there's the old adage that you could, you could be anything you want to be and I gen I genuinely believe that now more than ever I really do but I think the problem is there's just so much potential that you could be anything you want to be but you need to you need to concede that you're not going to be able to do other things. You need to keep the goal the goal and you can do what you want to do. Sure, there's going to be missed opportunities, but that's just the name of the game when, when you're looking for that, that, high, that high performance and, and that emergence that I was talking about before that you, know, you need to have the right code of events kind of going on for you to be able to perform at that high level. And sure, it's going to cost. There's, there's, it's just a, a, a cost to, to any opportunity. And I, I think the, the younger people realize the more opportunity there is for them to do whatever they want. I, you know, they think they're too young or whatever the case might be, but I think high, high, figuring out what you want to do in high school, if you really put something in your mind and probably I would say by the time you're a sophomore or a junior, you can do whatever that thing is that you wanted to do. It, no questions about it. No question. And like, you can't just expect in any line of work for things to be handed to you. Like there are just, so little examples out there of people who just got lucky, right? A majority of the people have to just work their ass off. You have to have passion for what you want to do. You have to want it and you have to work toward it. it. Success really doesn't just happen overnight. And like you can even look at Instagram celebrities and YouTube stars right now. Go back to the first videos that they were making they weren't getting a bunch of views, right? Unless their parent is a celebrity, they're not getting a bunch of views. You gotta work toward that and there have to be incremental steps taken and you have to continue to work and work and work and work hard and have passionate for it and not be discouraged by you know, only getting 10 views on your YouTube channel. But if you continue to get reps in and you continue to get that experience, you're going to get better and then your following is going to grow and then more people are going to tune in. It's just that overall process in any, any line of work um, of just kind of that slow grind that you, have to, that you have to embrace. Some people get lucky. It's, it's right place, right time, and success happens very, very quickly. But in most instances, it does not. Um, I read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, founder of Nike. He ran track at Oregon and had this dream of starting a sneaker company when he was young, right? It took him like a decade plus, maybe even more, to even earn a profit for his shoe business. He was living in his parents' house, selling sneakers out of his basement, but he had a dream, he had a vision, he knew what he wanted to do, he wasn't discouraged, and, and no question, at times, you can be down and out, and you can feel like crap, right? And you can think about giving up, but if you have that determination and will to succeed, like Phil Knight did, selling shoes out of his basement for more than a decade, because he's got that passion and that vision, you, it goes back to what you're saying. You can honestly do anything that you put your mind to it, but you have to work hard at it and believe in yourself. 
All right. I, I'm, I'm painfully aware of how little time we have left here, but one of the things I wanted to get your opinion on before we kind of tune off here was uh, just if you have a, a just a, a quick little prediction or, or just some quick comments on what you think about uh, basically video gaming becoming a sport in itself as a sports broadcaster, where do you see that, that heading directionally? Yeah, I've got about like five minutes here. So Esports has has really taken off over the last couple of years. And ten years ago, when you know I was eighteen, if you would have told me that esports, the industry, could be as profitable as it is now, I would have told you that you're crazy. But if you look at the way that the that the gaming industry is trending right now and where it's going, I mean, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar business in a couple of years, which is just insane for me. I've never been a gamer. I've always sucked at video games. And I, I, I used to play them a lot growing up and I enjoyed it for a short amount of time, but then it kind of got old for me really quickly. I'm more of a person who likes to do things. That's part of the reason why I wasn't a good student at all. Like if you ask me to sit in a lecture hall for an hour and a half and I have to listen to somebody who's trying to, to, to teach me things, I just, I don't have the attention span. I get stir crazy and I just end up like falling asleep because I, I just can't pay attention because I just get so, so tired of just sitting there. But if you translate that into allowing me to get my hands on something and you let me do something, my level of productivity takes off and, and I can be really successful in that. It's the hands-on learning that I think is the most beneficial for me. So I, I could just never really get into video games just sitting there and, and st sitting in front of a TV and, and just you know twiddling my thumbs on a controller. It's never been my thing. But I will say this, like when the NBA had some of its star players play against one another a, a few weeks ago at the start of this pandemic when there were no other live sports and they broadcast their video games playing I watched it and I was like you know what this is kind of interesting to hear them talk yeah. back and forth and to watch these video games play out um, it, it's never really been my thing but I, I respect the industry because the money's there and it's taken off. And if you look at where it's trending, especially now uh, when everybody's been sitting inside this whole time, it's booming and it's real and it's only going to continue to rise. And some of the top sports owners in all professional sports are starting to make investments in that area because they realize where gaming is going. And you look at that, those are some of the brightest, smartest, and most rich individuals out there on the planet. Uh, they're making those investments. That kind of tells you everything that you need to know. Awesome. Now, I, so that's that's about all I have today. But one of the thing, one of the places I'd like to point people for you, um, specifically just because of the swimming following that I have, is the in the Chase Down podcast you did with Jamie Rudisill. I think yeah. just you know just even even as a non-swimmer, just the whole idea we've been talking about about just building a culture of excellence. I think that's a fantastic podcast for that. There's some other good ones on there. There's a good one. On no there. doubt. Two, two good ones on there with a guy named John Metalavich that they're, they're worth listening to as well. There you go. Good, good shameless plug right there. Yeah. yeah Jamie Rudisill is a father figure to me. Um, he coached swimming and diving at Westchester University for 29 years. He took over the program when they had no money, where there was little success. And he turned the program from being constantly in the cellar into one of the most dominant programs in all of Division II swimming, coached multiple uh, national champions. Uh, his teams were constantly ranked uh, amongst the top in all of Division Two, And just, I I'm always fascinated by how somebody can turn around a program that was in the basement and turn it into a perennial powerhouse, but also like the pillars of how to establish a culture. And culture isn't just about like the strength of a locker room or a sports organization. Like it's in business too, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, if you're working in a place where the workplace culture is all over the place, that's not going to extract the best out of that certain individual or yourself. If there's tumultuous, rocky culture in, in a work environment, it's not going to bring the best out of employees. So like how to establish a great culture isn't just sports related. It can be business related too. And it's something that I'm kind of passionate about and really interested in. And we talked a lot about that on that podcast too. So, Awesome. Well, where can people find you? And 
Yeah. So on Twitter at Chase underscore senior, uh, Instagram at Chase underscore senior 20, or maybe Chase senior 20, one of those two. Um, I put out like a bunch of clips there. And then uh, the Chase Down podcast is available, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You can check it out on WNEP.com for those who are in our little viewing area, John. And then the underrated hour is also uh, available anywhere you listen to your podcast as well. So yeah, there you go right there. Awesome. All right. Well, good talking to you, Chase. You too, man. Thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. That's a wrap on today's episode. You can find more about the Human Advancement Podcast and Ruthless Performance on ruthlessperformance.com. I specifically recommend that you head to our online education tab where you can learn more about self-improvement, the physiology of performance, practices for enhanced wellness, and more. You can view all podcast episodes directly on our website at podcast.ruthlessperformance.com. I also recommend that you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. If you have any questions for our monthly Q&A or wanted to learn more about training with Ruthless Performance, including information on our athlete development training, injury prevention and corrective exercise protocols, personal training, or for consults or assessments, you can get in touch with us online at ruthlessperformance.com contact or via email at info at ruthlessperformance.com. The human advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage.